Hello, everybody. I'm Jason Mikula, and welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast, where I interview leaders from across fintech, banking, and crypto. If you don't already subscribe, you can get this podcast automatically in your inbox. Just sign up at fintechbusinessweekly.com. In this episode, I sat down with Ian McDougall, the chief commercial officer at open banking startup Yapley, live at Money 2020 earlier this month. We had a chance to talk about Ian's background and how it led him to fintech, open banking in the US versus Europe, PSD2, how open banking can facilitate innovation and competition, and lessons the US can learn from Europe's experience with open banking. With that, let's get into the episode. All right, I'm here with Ian McDougall, the Chief Commercial Officer of Yapley, an open banking startup at Money 2020 in Amsterdam. Ian, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. To get started, why don't we go a bit through your background, sort of how you got into you know, fintech, open banking, and the role you're in today, and then I'd love to hear a bit more about Yapley. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, look, I spent the vast majority of my career in in the tech industry, all of my, all of my career, I should in the tech industry, um, originally with you know some very very large companies, uh, and as I kind of progressed through the course of my career, uh, around 2010 I was introduced to the world of, of cloud computing, uh, just as it was really starting to take off. Uh, I was working at Google uh, as uh, as we brought kind of cloud computing to market, and started to see just some really uh, fascinating kind of dynamics starting to occur in terms of how. APIs and the internet were reshaping the way that businesses consumed technology services. So moving away from building everything yourself to consuming them as you know as a service uh, APIs mm-hmm. uh, and so on. And that was a that was a really kind of pivotal time in the industry, and I think a p- pretty pivotal time, you know, in my career, uh, which took me. Uh, into the world of fintech, interestingly enough, because I, I left Google Cloud after a number of years uh, and went to the payments company Stripe because I was fascinated by what I could see as the parallels between the world of cloud computing and where payments was going. So payments had historically been something that was old and clunky and legacy and not fit for the internet age. And so here was this company Stripe along with some others really reinventing the world of payments by using APIs and making it really easy for businesses just to get started uh, in consuming payments. So I spent quite a few years uh, at Stripe through some really fascinating uh, periods of, of the company. Uh, and then a couple of years ago now uh, landed at Yapley. Uh, again, the same theme of the world of APIs really kind of transforming what is possible for businesses to build great products and services and provide them onwards to their customers. So. Like I say, that, that brought me to Yapley. Um, we're an open banking infrastructure provider. Uh, and so really what we're all about is building all of the connectivity and the infrastructure and the platform uh, that businesses need so that they can participate within the open banking economy. And I'm sure we can talk a little bit mm-hmm. more through this discussion yeah. about exactly what that means. So most of uh, my listeners, I imagine, are familiar with open banking kind of as it exists in the U.S. environment, mm-hmm. which is a very market-driven uh, approach to sort of developing and deploying the, the capabilities. In the U.K. and in Europe, um, you know, it's evolved quite differently. Can you sort of set, set the stage or set the background of you know, what does open banking 
in Europe look like and how has that impacted the kinds of technologies, capabilities you're developing at Yapling and the kinds of you know, products, services that your customers can then offer to, to their audience or their consumers. Sure. Yeah, you're quite right. The, U, the U.S. environment is very much market-driven, <coughs> bottom-up, uh, as we might uh, as we might describe it. Whereas the European and UK experience has been far more regulatory-driven and top-down. Uh, and so, in the case of you know the advent, I guess, of or the, the origination of standards-based uh, open banking. Um, came about here in the UK actually as a result of the, the uh, competition authority or the competition regulator in the UK saying the large banks um, had you know, a, a relative monopoly or stranglehold on um, the banking environment which was stifling innovation and stifling competition and so uh, passed a piece of regulation to say that uh, banks needed to kind of open up Mm-hmm. Um, you know their their you know their capabilities and publish standard APIs for both account information, so accessing mm-hmm. the data, uh, you know, and the transaction information that sits within a business or a consumer's bank account, as well as providing standardised APIs to allow payments to be initiated from those mm-hmm. same bank bank accounts. This ultimately gave rise to what's called PSD2, Payment Services Directive Number 2, mm-hmm. which is the pan-European regulation which governs open banking uh, as we know it across the UK and the EU at the moment, which basically says that all regulated banks across the EU and the UK need to provide open access to regulated third parties, so a company like Yapoli, mm-hmm. uh, to provide access with the consent of the bank account holders mm-hmm. to access their bank account either for data or payment initiation purposes. And so that top-down regulatory-driven approach uh, has meant that things have moved really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also meant that um, the services that that companies like Yapley are able to provide to our customers who are other businesses mm-hmm. who are, again are building you know financial products and services that connect to all of the banks have been able to be done in a way that's far more secure far more scalable mm-hmm. far more standardized uh, which is really what what has allowed uh, open banking as we know it under PSD2 across Europe to to gain pace very very quickly uh, you know we're seeing you know, the rate of user adoption uh, of something like open banking in the UK, for example, reach a point of kind of user penetration uh, far more quickly than something like contactless payments did, which uh, mm-hmm. also, uh, you know, uh, reached a level of kind of penetration of many millions of, of uh, daily active mm-hmm. users in the UK. Uh, open banking has eclipsed even that in terms of the pace of adoption. Uh, and so very exciting time to mm-hmm. be, I guess, to be part of the industry and seeing how all of these kind of great ideas that you know, other innovative companies are, are able to build on top of our platform. That's interesting. I mean, there are definitely some specific parallels and differences with what what has happened in the American market and what is unfolding at the moment. Uh, I mean, for instance, you know, the part of the CFPB, which is the American Consumer Protection Regulator, um, you know, they're encouraging moving forward with developing rules and standards for open banking. And one of the very specific 
underlying you know, policy reasons that they've cited is encouraging competition. Has that come to fruition in the UK and in Europe? Do you think from where you sit that, that open banking you know, as a you know, technology uh, has encouraged or enabled competition in a way that wasn't possible before? I, undoubtedly. A, ca- a categoric yes. And I think this has been the fundamental benefit, shall we say, of a regulatory, standardised driven approach. Uh, Because what it's meant is that uh, it's created opportunity in a fair and democratic way for startups, fintechs, businesses of all shapes and sizes now to be able to provide genuinely better and fairer financial products and services to end users. And like I say, those end users can be consumers like you and me, mm-hmm. or they can be you know, small and medium businesses and so on, which provides a whole raft of benefits in terms of consumer choice, in the areas of financial inclusion, uh, in a way that the underserved uh, were just not able to uh, be served in kind of the, the old way of doing things before open banking uh, and this environment came along. Uh, and I think that, you know, whilst we're still quite early in you know the life cycle of open banking and what will go on to become open finance beyond the world of just banking whilst we're still quite early um, we're undoubtedly seeing just a level of innovation and competition and ultimately choice uh, for the end users of financial products and services that just didn't exist before and what wasn't possible before mm-hmm. so what what are some concrete examples of uh, a product or a service that an end user would access. So are we talking about switching my current account from RBS to Monzo? Are we talking about, you know, I don't have a credit file, but you can underwrite me using transaction data in my bank account? Like, what are some sort of specific use cases that are enabling that competition or that inclusion that, that didn't used to exist? Yeah, uh, there, there are many. I think that first one that you've cited about, you know, current account switching, I think that's a bit of a fallacy, to be perfectly really? honest. That was not no. really, it's often cited, but was actually never really, no, you know, the intention of, no. of, you know, of open banking in, in its in its kind of original incarnation. I think the example, that you, the second example yeah. that you cited is one of the most common, uh, and that is to say that using live, real-time, current data, uh, credit and underwriting decisions um, can be taken in a way that are just fairer and more accurate than kind of the, the more backward-looking you know, credit score or credit reference agency model uh, you know, for, un- for underwriting um, you know, lending decisions. So definitely seeing that at both the business uh, and the consumer level. Uh, we're also seeing, you know, some real benefits. Uh, we, we work with a lot of accounting software uh, mm-hmm. platforms, for example, like Intuit, uh, the QuickBooks product. Uh, and really what we're seeing there is a, for, for SMEs in particular, so who are users of accounting software like QuickBooks, able to ingest in real time uh, all of the transaction data from, from their connected bank accounts, mm-hmm. so that, which really assists them with, you know, with cash flow, with reconciliation, uh, which also helps them uh, on the payment side of open banking be able to make it very easy, much, much easier for them to collect uh, cash owing against invoices that they might issue mm-hmm. by incorporating some really kind of neat and simple 
payments technology so that you know if, if I'm a small business and you're you know a customer a, a supplier of mine mm-hmm. um, sorry a customer of mine that may that may owe me money I can issue you an invoice and then with a simple QR code or a, or a click to pay link can use open banking to pay mm-hmm. that invoice instantly uh, in a way that's just really kind of cutting down the collection times and improving mm-hmm. cash flow for, for small to medium businesses many other use cases around payments as well um, around kind of account top-ups about moving funds from a bank account into an investment platform like bucks or money farm or others that we work with um, into crypto wallets to enable you know the purchase of you know cryptocurrency for investment and trading purposes so anywhere where there's a requirement to benefit from accessing real-time data um, or initiating payments directly from a bank account, uh, then there's a myriad of use cases beyond those. And this is something that, that is interesting and I think worth drawing attention to. You know, in, in the American context, open banking, at least at this point, is pretty much read-only. Um, and it may not even be via API. You know, there are right. something like 5,000 uh, banks in the U.S. and another 5,000 credit unions, so a very, very fragmented landscape. And you can imagine uh, the work that goes into building, you know, API integrations with, you know, something like 10,000 institutions. Not to mention, you know, brokerages and other types of financial services providers. Uh, so at, at this point, it's basically, you know, I can read information from your account. But that's about it. Right. And even then, it may not be, you know, it may be via screen scraping instead of a, a more secure and, and reliable API integration. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about uh, the payments use case. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is there an example of, you know, a customer of Yapli and, and what it is that they enable for their end consumer? And what is that... Uh, you know, this is an audio medium, so maybe not ideal, but what does that look like from a customer perspective? You know, I'm opening an app on my phone, and instead of having to go to Barclays and initiate a transaction there, I can do it directly inside That's my right. brokerage account or my crypto app or something? Yeah, indeed. All, all of those sorts of examples. So um, a classic one would be, you know, within uh, Money Farm, for example, yeah. which is, you know, an in investment platform here, here in Europe. Um, exactly that. If if I, as a you know a, a customer or a user of Money Farm, wanted to put money into my investment account, then typically I would need to leave the Money Farm mm-hmm. you know user interface and experience, go to my you know internet or online banking portal and push funds mm-hmm. into my account. Um, some of the elegant simplicity of the API-based approach for payments under open banking means that all of that can be seamlessly integrated into our customers' application Mm -hmm. flow so that they get far higher conversion because Mm -hmm. their customer doesn't need to leave the app and their user gets a far simpler, far better, uh, far more streamlined Mm -hmm. user experience when it comes uh, to moving those funds. Other pay- the other kind of key payments use case that we're seeing really take off, uh, and this was kind of well publicised, you know, here in Europe, um, by when you know Amazon and some of the card schemes had a little bit of a run in mm-hmm. uh, late last year and earlier this year, was around just the cost benefit that an account to account payment versus a credit card payment uh, can have, and so, you know, 
typically merchants um, are wearing the cost of you know, mm-hmm. credit card payments, obviously thereby indirectly, you know, those are being those are being borne by consumers as well. And so now we're starting to see all sorts of use cases and exa- examples of payments service providers, PSPs, mm-hmm. incorporating open banking or account-to-account payments as a payment method yeah. alongside cards, alongside uh, other methods. So one of our one of our customers uh, is a is an open banking PSP called the Vault uh, that mm-hmm. you've heard of here in Europe, and they're doing precisely that. They're integrating through Yapley's technology the ability to initiate uh, payments from bank accounts and they in turn are providing that as a payment service provider service to e-commerce merchants mm-hmm. or and others who want to offer open banking based payments to their uh, to their downstream customers doing so in a far more uh, secure a far more mm-hmm. real-time uh, way because these are using instant Mm-hmm. Payments rails like FPS in the UK or SEPA instant uh, in mm-hmm. Europe for the movement of uh, for the movement of euros. So we're seeing faster payments, we're seeing uh, more secure payments, and mm-hmm. we're seeing far better user experiences in terms of the flows that the end users need to go through. Yeah, I mean payments are so interestingly local. Something that you, know, you experience. <coughs> Certainly, when you travel, but even more living in, in various countries. You know, I, I mentioned before we started that you know, I lived in London for a while. Uh, I actually lived in the British West Indies for a while. That was all cash, um, and and now here in the Netherlands. And um, you know, the primary payment mechanism for e-com here is Ideal, Indeed. which is a you know an account-to-account payment mechanism, and I think it accounts for like maybe sixty or seventy percent of online transactions are processed that way. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'll be interested to see how that unfolds in the U.S., where you know consumers, myself included, are very addicted to their rewards points, mileage mm-hmm. points, etc., which is somewhat of a thing in the U.K. At least it, just a little bit. In the I, UK. I had not my, as much as the U.S. Yeah. I had my uh, British Airways Amex when I lived there, and, and here in the Netherlands, it's it's just not a thing at all. Yeah. You know, the interchange doesn't tend to support it. But um, this is maybe veering a little outside of, of the topic, but to what extent do you think the underlying payment network itself, so the fact that, that there are faster or real-time payments available, how important is that in enabling some of these use cases? And, and I ask that because you know the, the U.S. is woefully behind. You know, ACH is still, in, in theory anyway, sort of a three or four business day to allow clearing and settlement to mm-hmm. manage that ACH risk. Although there are some interesting things people are doing with AI and machine learning to try to mitigate some of that. Um, but I would imagine that the combination of open banking with faster or real-time payments becomes a very sort of potent combination as far it as what you, can, what you can do with it. It, it absolutely does. And I think the, the important thing that many that some people don't realize about open banking is that open banking is not itself a set of new payment rails. It leverages the existing, and in the case of the UK and Europe, the, the instant or the real-time bank-to-bank payment rails that already exist, so if FPS and SEPA. Uh, or separate instant, I should say. And so you're quite right, that combination of A, it's it's secure, B, it's more cost-effective, and C, it's instant, um, is exactly that, a potent combination. And I think increasingly in a world of, obviously, of online payments, from a consumer perspective, where, well, making the payment is one thing, mm-hmm. but as we all know in kind of a retail environment, 
there's a very large number of returns and mm-hmm. refunds and so on that need to be issued. And that's one of that area in particular is one where we're seeing, you know, some major advantage and opportunity of real-time refunds, for example, mm-hmm. so that um, in the same way that the payment can be made instantly, uh, then also the consumer, if they need to make a return or a refund, well, they don't need to wait, mm-hmm. you know, seven days to have the funds returned back to their account. In theory, it can be done instantly as well in the same way as the original uh, payment is made. Equally, for, for the merchant, um, then, you know, depending on which PSP and, you know, what credit card scheme mm-hmm. a payment has been made with, that will, you know, in the in the cards world, will have a determination of how quickly the merchant receives mm-hmm. funds settled into their accounts as well. Again, in the open banking world, there's a major benefit for merchants, A, of not having to absorb, mm-hmm. you know, interchange and, and, and network fees, but be also having real-time access to the, to the funds settled to their account. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned uh, one thing I want to expand on a little bit, which was greater security of account-to-account payments. I mean, a major problem, you know, even with uh, chip and pin, or in the U.S., chip and SIG, <laughs> um, you know, fraud remains a, a pervasive problem in the card space, and, and you know, to some extent, that's you know baked into the merchant discount rate and the cost of interchange, etc. And, and in that market, I suppose it's just sort of an accepted cost of doing business. And it's accepting. an overhead. It's yeah. an overhead that's been there for a long time. It's just accepted. But what is there something specific? about account-to-account payments uh, that are facilitated, you know, in conjunction with open banking from a technical perspective that, that lowers that fraud risk. There certainly is. Every open banking payment is secured with secured customer authentication, SCA, mm-hmm. uh, as it's, as it's uh, you know, again, known, known here in Europe and governed under, you know, under the, uh, the regulations here. Uh, and so that inherently means that every single payment or transaction is secured with you know, biometrics or a PIN uh, every, every single time. So the, the possibilities and the opportunities for fraud in the world of open banking are just inherently uh, far less than they are in kind of the, the chip and, certainly in the chip and signature uh, world, that much is for sure. Well, and just at a sort of practical standpoint, that's because if I'm you know buying something at bowl, a sort of electronics-ish retailer here, uh, I'm seeing a QR code on the screen on my computer because I'm old and I shop on my computer. I'm scanning that with my banking app on my phone and to access that banking app, you know, I probably both used Face ID or Touch ID from an Apple perspective and a PIN code to open that. So these sort of potentially multiple layers of authentication versus if my credit card number or debit card number have been stolen, it's very easy for a fraudster to at least attempt to use that. That's right. Particularly in card not present transactions. Exactly right. Exactly right. Interesting. Um, I mean, from a merchant perspective, uh, at least from your experience in, in the UK and the markets you operate in, uh, are you seeing sort of a concerted effort for, are merchants doing things to encourage users to pay via one of these account-to-account methods instead of something else, instead of a card payment? Yeah, they, they are. I mean, a lot of it is about, in some cases, we're seeing examples of our customers 
exclusively offering open banking as a payment. Ah, so if you want to pay, this is the only way you right. can pay. Right, and so oh. that, that would be more in the case of, you know, some of the examples we talked about where somebody might want to put funds into, you know, an investment wallet mm-hmm. or an investment app uh, online. But equally, you know, I think we've all experienced in as consumers, you know, in the world of online commerce and online shopping, just the the plethora of different payment methods that are presented to us all uh, at checkouts. And so the positioning and the placement of payment methods at checkouts mm-hmm. plays a very fundamental role in their adoption and uptake and usage. Uh, and one of the reasons that we're starting to see now um, online merchants promote open banking mm-hmm. uh, as a pay- account-to-account payments uh, is for all the reasons that we've just yeah. been discussing, yeah. right? They're cheaper, they're faster, they're more secure, they're real-time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're certainly starting to see now merchants uh, prioritise those or promote those mm-hmm. over other payment methods. Yeah, it is something I've noticed, uh, particularly shopping online here in Europe. One, the, the plethora of payment options, particularly with the proliferation of different buy-now-pay-later platforms, mm-hmm. Uh, and then two, I think I was buying my flight uh, to Vegas for Money 2020 US and KLM, uh, the Dutch national carrier. Uh, of course, ideals at the top, you can pay with a card, but there was an extra surcharge in order to do so, which, yeah. Yeah. you know, that's a, that is a way of incentivizing the preferred sure method. Is. And I think we'll yeah. see more and more of that as, yeah. you know, what you referred to as, you know, that cost overhead having mm-hmm. been something that historically has just been accepted because mm-hmm. it's been there for so long. I think what we're starting to see now is, is some of that unpicked yeah. uh, a little bit. Well, in you know, trying to think forward a little bit about how this could unfold in the US, which eventually there'll be sort of more structured open banking and you know faster payment networks, which is FedNow and Clearinghouse RTP, mm-hmm. you know, I can imagine a universe where uh, merchants can build loyalty schemes or reward schemes around, uh, you know, an open banking or account-to-account payments because they're not paying that exactly. interchange. You know, they're not dealing with the fraud to the same extent, and so that that potentially provides some interesting opportunities to differentiate. As instead of using your Chase Sapphire Reserve or your Amex, you know, use account-to-account payment, and we're going to give you, you know, X. Exactly right. I think it's in- inevitable that that will start to occur. That opportunity is already there, and I indeed have heard examples of of those ideas starting to, uh, you know, starting to you know, be present in the market already. Anyway, I know that we're almost at time. Um, any final thoughts on what uh, what practitioners in the U.S., whether it's fintechs, banks, or even regulators, I think some of them listen to this, um, <laughs> any lessons they could learn from how open banking um, has unfolded in the U.K. and in Europe? Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think you know, the first is that which we've spent a lot of time talking about already, which is the you know, the, the regulatory-driven kind of top-down approach. I think the other lesson that we've really learned here in in the UK, well, in the UK in particular, has been um, the in, in the UK we did something to really accelerate the early use of or the early adoption of open banking, and that was the creation of a special purpose entity called the Open Banking Implementation Entity, or the OBIE, mm-hmm. which was set up under the regulatory regime to define the standards and promote, uh, actively promote the implementation and adoption and success of open banking. And it's one of the main reasons why uh, the UK 
by any measure is the leader in the field of the open banking. A lot of the other um, you know, countries across continental Europe are certainly catching up and catching up fast, but the UK really stole the march. And a big reason for that was going the extra step of having a special, you know, mm. a, 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 a um, specialised entity there and responsible for promoting the, the adoption of it. Um, one of the things that we that we do on an annual basis and we'll be publishing in uh, in a few weeks' time is what we call our Open Banking League table. So mm. in, in the theme of, you know, the, the football or the soccer uh, <laughs> over here in Europe of the, uh, you know, the various uh, European leagues that go on each year, we publish a kind of a league table which ranks the countries across Europe uh, in terms of their maturity and success and rate of adoption of open banking. So that's something that um, will be coming out in the next couple of weeks as well. And we're, what we're certainly expecting is to that point that I was just making, the UK probably still at the head of the field, but that gap is closing as open banking has rapidly matured over the last 12 months across so many countries across Europe as well. And so that would be a word of, certainly a word of advice would be think about not just defining what the standards should be and what the regulation says must happen, but actually having a vehicle mm. for, for ensuring that, in fact, it does happen. Fantastic. Uh, where can people follow you and where can people learn more about Yapley and stay tuned for the, uh, the league table when the it comes out? The league table, yeah. yeah. Well, look, yapley.com uh, is, uh, is the best place uh, to find us, as, uh, but certainly uh, you, you can find us on all, all the usual uh, platforms uh, across the internet as well. All right. Thank you so much, Ian. A real pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this installment of Fintech Business Podcast. I want to thank Ian for taking the time to speak with me and the entire Money 2020 team for putting together an amazing event. As a reminder, if you're interested in being a guest or sponsoring an episode, drop me a line at jason at fintechbusinessweekly.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.